Thanks for joining us here on the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Kathy Kuhn, the Counseling Director at Rolling Hills. This week we're beginning our series, Masterclass, where we'll be journeying through the Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter. Jesus is our master, and we'll be taking a class all summer long on how we ought to live with His Gospel as our textbook. In this first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is baptized, declares the good news, and says to his disciples, come follow me. Will you choose to come and follow him? We're so glad you're here to tune in for the start of this adventure with us, and as we hear about the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Good morning. I'm glad that you're here today. My name is Nick Allen, and I'm privileged to get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. And we are post-Easter starting a brand new series into the book of Mark. Um, and it's this idea of masterclass and, and what it means for us to be a people who approach a subject that we want to learn about. Um, now, I told the first service hour this morning that um, specifically my kids, they all know about dad jokes. And a lot of the people in the room know about dad jokes. I wasn't going to tell any of those. But my grandfather um, was a preacher during his career. He was a pastor. And uh, he told what we referred to as preacher jokes, like preacher stories. And they're, they're equally not as funny. Um, but they do make sense. And they often prove some sort of subversive point. So he tells this story, and it's probably pretty common, probably a lot of pastors told this story of a woman who had surgery um, on like her shoulder, rotator cuff, elbow, doesn't matter, somewhere on her arm. And uh, so he tells this story of a woman who had surgery, and she comes out of the anesthesia, and the surgery's over, and the surgeon is standing there with her, and he begins to explain the procedure and ultimately tell her how well it went. And the lady just says, oh, I'm so relieved. Now, I have a question. And so the doctor's like, okay, what's your question, ma'am? Will I be able to play the violin? And he's like, well, well, you know, they're really, I, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to play the violin as well as you did before. And she says, oh, no, I didn't play it before, um, but will I be able to play it now? And, and it's this idea of like, I don't know what it is that you've come to the table of never having been able to do before, especially as it relates to following Jesus. I've never been able to do that before. I've never been able to give that up. I've never been able to take that step. I've never been able to move that direction. Here's what I'm hoping, that over the next 16 weeks, that's how long we're going to be in this series, literally going chapter by chapter in the book of Mark, that, that something new would transpire. And you would be able to do what you've never done before, believe what you've never done before, see it in a way that you've never seen before, that something would literally surgically happen on the inside of you to make you different. We're in a master class. I invite you to turn in your Bibles today if you have them. You've got your analog copy and you can flip some pages or digital. You can find it on your phone. Words will pop up on the screen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, so naturally I'm going to start with a verse from John, um, chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus says to the people that are following him, he literally looks at the crowds and he says, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. 
And that word hold, it can be translated continue in some Bible translations. It can be the idea of remaining. If you, if you hold steadfast, if you, if you stick with Jesus, then you are really his disciples. And the word disciples in this moment is the word methetes. It's where we get the name Matthew, and it literally means student or pupil or learner. And that's what we're doing this summer as we come to this idea of masterclass. We're, we're pupils and we're learners. And I don't want you to come to this whole concept of masterclass knowing, well, that's for people who are already experts and they just want to get better. Know any space that you're in when you come to the table with this whole idea. Whether you've never followed Jesus before or you've been following him for years and years, there is a place for all of us to begin to take that step, to make that move, to go in that direction of understanding what it means to follow him. The word teaching in that verse is literally the word logos. It means word. You know, we've got these passages of Scripture that say in the beginning was uh, the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and we understand Jesus to be that because Logos in the Greek language was so much more than just the idea of words on a page, letters forming these concepts and ideas. It was a literal philosophy, and this is how it was defined in Greek. It was a universal divine reason. There was something specifically divine about this Word. It was imminent in nature and transcend all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and in humanity. When we talk about this word of God, this word that we're going to hold to, this word that we're going to study, this word that we're going to dive into, this word that we're going to understand, there is absolutely nothing in the cosmos, in the philosophical realm, in the scientific realm, in the spiritual realm, nothing in the cosmos, and also nothing in you, nothing in me that can stand up against this word, this teaching. It is an eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation and available to every single individual who seeks it. Now I'll say on the outset of this series that there's a really big difference between I don't understand something and I don't like something. And a lot of times we want to approach this word of God, especially the specific parts of it that we find to be difficult or hard, and we're like, oh, I just don't understand that, or oh, that's, there's really a whole lot of room for interpretation as, as to what that really means. Now, there are moments where sometimes it's just complicated, and we, in fact, don't get it. But the hard truth is that more often than being a people who don't get what it says, we're just a people who would prefer that it say something different. John Mark Homer writes, he says that many exclaim that the Bible is hard to understand and therefore easy to misinterpret or open to lots of different interpretations. And that's simply because they don't want to accept the implications of what it clearly means. No doubt some parts are hard and it helps to have background information. We'll start that, more, that way this morning with Mark. The idea of background information, language, culture, context, etc. But on essentials on the things that really matter, the Bible leaves very little room for confusion. I should have this tattooed on my forehead. I've quoted it time and time again. If you've been with me for any length of time at all, you've heard me say that Augustine remarked in this way. If you accept, if you believe, if you trust only what you like about the Bible and reject the stuff that you don't like about the Bible. It's not the Bible that you believe. It's not the Bible that you trust. It's not the Bible that you ascribe. It's yourself. And we're not going to sit on the seat of authority of what's true. We're going to allow God to do that. We're going to allow this word to do that. Much of what people are always trying to figure out is, how does the Bible apply to me? And that is certainly a worthy pursuit. And we're going to see that as we look at the life of Jesus in the book of Mark. But we cannot jump straight to application, especially when we're learning how to follow Jesus. 
Because here's the deal. We cannot figure out what it means to follow Jesus today if we don't first pause and try to understand what it meant to follow Jesus back then. The Bible, this text, cannot mean for us today what it did not mean for them then. The the idea of an intended audience of Scripture matters, and so we're going to start with the idea of background as we attempt to figure out what does it in fact mean to follow Jesus. And here's the deal that we have to go ahead and accept on the outset, and I'll just go ahead and tell you as a little bit of a disclaimer. If you desire to hold to his teaching, if you desire to be a disciple, if you desire to sit under what this book says, if you desire to align your life with it and to follow Jesus with who you are, it will flip everything about you upside down. It will require an intense amount of change. It will alter every single part of your reality. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's something completely different about him. That's what the text aims to do. In the book of Mark, we got to understand the context of where it came. And the first place that you start is with the author. Like, who wrote this book? The Gospels don't say for us specifically, like the epistles, like the letters that came later on in the New Testament, the, 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 the Gospels don't tell us at the very beginning, oh, this is the guy who wrote this book, but it was universally accepted in the life of the early church and in all the other extra-biblical writings that it was, in fact, Mark who wrote this book. Some of the Bible translations, we do double names in the South, like my kids are named Lily Kate and Nora Blake. Well, this guy's name was John Mark, so some, there's some double names in here. It's because we're in Tennessee. You got it. So John Mark wrote this book. And scripture tells of us, it's in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he was the cousin to Barnabas. Uh, We get it from 1 Peter chapter 5, who writes about him, he was the companion of Peter. We get it from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and other places in scripture that he was connected to Paul. This was a guy who was there. This was a guy who was connected. This is a guy who knew the other people that we talk about in scripture, and it was universally accepted and applied in the first and second century that this book was specifically written by a fellow named Mark, Justin Martyr, who wrote in 150 AD, he referred to the Gospel of Mark as really the memoirs of Peter. Because we understand that this book is literally Peter's version of the story, how Peter interpreted all the events that happened as he was following Jesus from a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee all the way to the cross and the seashore where he was told to go out and to make disciples of all nations. Like, this is his version of that story, and Mark being connected to him is the guy who wrote it down. Arrhenius in 185 AD referred to Mark as the disciple of and the interpreter of Peter. He wrote it down. He gave us this story. There's a a spot, and I love to talk about it because it's such a weird verse. Like, we usually skip it in sermons. Like, we don't go to it often. If you want to, like, put your finger in Mark chapter 1 and go all the way to Mark chapter 14, you can for a second. We'll talk about it in several weeks when we finally get to this chapter again because it will not be a verse that we literally skip over. And Mark chapter 14, verse 50 says this, everyone deserted him and fled. This whole picture of Jesus being arrested, knowing that he was going to be tried, understanding that he was going to be convicted. Everybody that was around him fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, so apparently not only was Jesus picked up, but this this other little fellow who we don't know his name, who was wearing a linen garment, he fled naked. You didn't know that that was in here. Most people skip right over it because it's like, when they seized him, he fled naked. Some people in Tennessee want to say the word naked, leaving his garment behind. And we don't know that there's a streaker in the New Testament, but he's literally right there as he's trying to escape arrest in this moment. And there are scholars who literally come back and they argue over the finer points of this text to try to say, this is Mark. He was with the other disciples. He was following closely behind Peter. And when everybody else tried to bolt, he was apparently the 
slower runner, and he got caught, and he literally stripped off his clothes so that he could run off to safety. And here's the deal. If it's Mark, why doesn't the Bible tell us it was Mark? Well, y'all, if that happened to me, I would not say that it was me either. Regardless of whether or not he's in this story, we can be confident that he was the one who wrote this story so that you and I would have this story. And not only you and I, but the original intended audience, because if we understand what's true about Scripture, the intended audience for this book was Gentile believers, specifically those who were in Rome, and also Gentile lost people, specifically those who needed to know Jesus in Rome. It is largely and and, and not objected at all that Mark was written in Italy, specifically Rome. And Rome was like the first of a long line of Western nations with Western ideals and Western understanding. Like Judaism was rooted in Eastern religion. It's a long way off. And they approached learning differently. They understood things differently. They talked about things differently. And so when you're trying to reach a Western audience, you got to do it. That's why Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. He gets rid of all the fluff details that are unnecessary and goes straight to the point. It's fast-paced, and it's all about the strength and the power and the might of Jesus, but it's couched in the humanity of Jesus. Mark, specifically, it's one of the distinctions. He talks about the humanity of Jesus more than the other Gospels to give a picture of what it would take to be a person in Rome to come to the understanding that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. To date, Mark, you have to go to 50 to 60 AD. Somewhere in that 10-year span, all of this was written down and passed on to believers and passed on to cities and passed on to churches so that they could use it to come up with a concise picture of everything that happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Peter died between 67 and 68 AD, and we know that this book had to come before that. The book of Acts and all of the things that it chronicles in the early church finished up around 63, and it was being written down as they went from town to town, from place to place, furthering the message of Jesus. And so by the time 63 happened, that book was ready to be disseminated and ready to be understood by people. And we know that Luke came before even that, and Mark came before Luke. So it stands to reason that Mark had to have been written down somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. There's a lot of question marks as to which gospel came first and which one was used to help funnel the others. And there's this whole principle of Q and this this random book that we don't have somewhere that's out there that became source material for the gospels. If Mark was written first, then it would stand to reason that Matthew and Luke grabbed a copy of Mark, used that for their text, but there's so many things that are in Matthew and Luke that aren't a part of Mark, so there's a synoptic problem there. It's like, where'd they get others? So we make up this imaginary text that must exist that no one's ever found. Q is the word quell in German, and it means source. So there must be some hidden source somewhere out there to help us understand why these books have a lot in common, but why these books also celebrate some very important differences. And ultimately, here's the deal. You can find five authors that all tell you that in America, we had a Revolutionary War, and then we had a Civil War, and then we had World War I, and then we had World War II, and then we had the Vietnam War, and then we had the Gulf War, and then we've had like a whole bunch of other wars since. And just because five people all put that down doesn't mean they're all looking at the exact same source. It means they just understand the exact same history. And there's relationships here. We know that Paul and Peter and Mark and Luke and all of these fellows are connected to one another. They don't need each other's texts. They have each other's lives. 
and they agree upon the principles of Jesus. And, and the reason why Mark would differ in any way, shape, or form from Matthew and Luke is because the audience is different and who he's trying to reach is different and their understanding of what's important is different. That's why there are so many distinctions. The reason why they know that Mark was intended for a Gentile audience or, or specifically a Roman audience is because there's all these phrases in here that would have been common knowledge for the Jew who spoke Aramaic. And Mark, he defines what they mean. You wouldn't define what they mean to somebody who was fluent in what it was. You wouldn't explain customs to somebody who already understood what they meant. But Mark goes into detail to explain things that any average, ordinary Jew would have completely already understood. Things that Matthew and Luke don't go into, Mark explains, Mark defines, because his audience is different. And that's why the pace. I don't know if it says anything about us, but we're a Western mindset, right? And it may be our attention spans, or it may be just the things that we value. But there are some things about this book that are going to speak to us, call us, challenge us in ways that we're going to be surprised by. So I hope you have your Bibles at this point. You've already flipped them over to Mark chapter 1 because that's where we're going to dive in together today. The gospel writers, they didn't set out to put together an orderly history or a biography of Jesus. What they, they wanted to give us was inspiration to follow Jesus. So we take that text today, and we're not looking for facts and figures and timelines. We're looking for a person. We're looking for a Savior. We're looking for a Messiah, because the major message of this whole text is, do you know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Subline, because if you do, your life will be different because of it. So we open it up, and we turn to Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, the beginning of the good news, that's the word euangelion, and it literally is where we get the word evangelism. We're taking good news to people. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is literally the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, and it means the Lord is salvation. And he writes, Jesus, the Messiah. Some of your Bible translations are going to say Christ in that spot, because what we want to make sure that no one has an opportunity to miss, that this Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Holy One, the Son of God. And so Mark, he's saying that right at the beginning, everything else that I'm about to say, everything else that I'm about to tell, every other detail that I'm going to give is in support of the idea that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he doesn't go like Matthew and Luke, the books that we read at Christmas time, to the original birth story of Jesus. That's not where we get the whole idea of Mary being visited by an angel or Joseph being visited by an angel or shepherds or wise men coming onto the scene. Ultimately, what Mark is saying is, I'm skipping right to the meat of what matters, and this is Jesus. Here he is at the start of his ministry. He's the Messiah. And then he goes into detail to talk about John, his forerunner. Whenever Rome would come into a city, there was a herald or a proclaimer, somebody that would go and say, Rome is on the way. There's news that's coming. And so John fulfilled that purpose and that role in the life of Jesus. He came on the scene to say, Jesus, the Messiah, is on the way. And if you skip down to verse 9, it says, At that time, while John was baptizing and amassing followers and telling them about the coming kingdom, it says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then it says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels uh, 
tended him. Mark focused specifically on what would have attracted a Roman audience. And you're sitting there going, well, I've read this passage before. And, and I thought that when Jesus was baptized, John argued with him at first and said, hey, I'm not fit to baptize you. And I thought that when Jesus went out into the wilderness that he fasted for those 40 days and that the devil came and had all these conversations with him like, hey, why don't you turn these rocks into bread? Like, hey, why don't you throw yourself off this building? Like, hey, why don't you command? Like, no, Mark goes straight through the points and gives you just the bullets of what matter. He was baptized, the Spirit descended, declared that he was the Son of God, and then he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. It says down in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of God to be at hand meant that the king was there. And anytime we go in scripture and we read these parts about like, oh, the kingdom of God is near, that meant that the king himself was coming. And then it says in verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. That word immediately or at once or without delay, it's the same word in Scripture, and it appears 41 times in the book of Mark. What it ultimately tells you is that this whole thing could have happened in three weeks, much less three years, because everything that Mark said was urgent. Everything that Mark said was immediate. He uses this word more than all three other Gospels combined, 12 times alone in just chapter 1. It's this whole picture of immediately something happened, immediately something happened, and that would have attracted the Roman audience. They would have wanted to know that something was happening, something was moving. It was a fast-paced story. And this is where you and I can intersect the story. Because Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent, change your mind. For you to come in contact with this word, it's going to change everything about you. Believe, to trust that it's true, to, to credit it, to have confidence, to entrust your life to it. I love the story of the disciples being called in the book of Luke because you get so many more details. It's, it's, it's the story of Peter and the other disciples. They're out fishing all night long and they don't catch a single thing. And there's Jesus teaching on the seashore and he, he calls the boat and says, hey, put out a little bit into shallow water. And he continues to teach the crowd from there. And once he's done teaching the crowd and he dismisses the people, he tells uh, Simon and his brother, hey, put out into deep water and, and let down your nets. And Peter and si Simon Peter, he's an experienced fisherman and he, he knows that the fish are not going to be biting. He knows that that's not the spot on the lake where they want to be. But he says to the Lord, because you say so, we will let down our nets. And they did, and they got so many fish in those nets that the, the, the nets began to break. And when they pulled them in, the boats began to sink. And so they had to call their friends to come over. And when they got back to shore, Peter literally fell on his face because he knew that he wasn't good enough to look at Jesus. And Jesus picked him up and said, hey, come and follow me. Mark gets straight to the meat of the matter. Luke gives us this whole drawn-out story of what goes on. And I don't know if it was a momentary interaction where Jesus called you or a whole big, much longer story. But regardless, I want to know what your answer was. Because no matter how long it took, and, and no matter what the details were, the only response to the invitation of Jesus is yes. That's it. 
The only valid response to the invitation from Jesus is yes. So have you heard? Maybe it only took three verses. Maybe it took three years. Have you heard? And have you responded with a yes to Jesus? If you skip down to verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Mark emphasized this because his audience would have loved the idea of Jesus being someone who taught with authority. The, the Eastern religion way of teaching things was to argue about it and pick out the finer points about it until you came to some kind of agreement about it. In Judaism, it was called Beit Midrash, and all the scribes and scholars would literally sit around and argue the scriptures, and then they would part friends. It was actually a great model for how we should disagree today. Mark skips all of that and goes straight to the meat of the matter and says that the audience who heard Jesus was attracted to him because he spoke with authority. It was personal, sometimes forceful and confrontational, but it was direct. You and I need the Bible to confront us. We, we need those moments when scripture is direct with us. And then it says, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, some of your Bible translations are just going to say demonic or he had a demon inside of him, he cried out, what do you want with us? Notice that it was plural, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Literally looking at the Son of God and saying, hey, I know we're from different kingdoms and I know you're out to destroy me. You know, part of the challenge in that passage of Scripture is that we are sometimes a little bit demonic ourselves. What? Did the pastor just call me demonic? Yes, I did, girl. Yes, I did. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all looking at Jesus saying, what do you want with me? Why are you trying to change me? Why are you trying to confront me? I've got my life over here in this kind of kingdom, and here you are coming at me with that kind of kingdom. What is it that you want to do to me? What is it that you want to be different about me? What are you trying to change about me? We come at Jesus with the same kind of response that the demons and the impure, unclean, spirited man dead, and Jesus looked at him and says, be quiet. Some of y'all didn't know Jesus told you to sit down and be quiet. And then he says, come out of him. God commands that kind of spirit, that kind of selfishness, that kind of kingdom to come out of us. It says the impure spirit shook the man violently. Some of y'all been there. You've been violent. You've been shaken. You've been trying to figure out what in the world Jesus is trying to do to you. And it says it came out of the man with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. You know, the, the only response to his invitation is yes. The only response to his power is total submission. The only response to the amazing power and authority of Jesus is total submission. We said 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is a, a new, if in Christ he is a, a new creation, those people looked at themselves and said, what is this? A new teaching? That new teaching is about to make you a new creation, and the only way that happens is when you submit to the authority of God's powerful word in your life. It says news spread about him quickly over the whole region of Galilee. When Jesus confronts us, well, it's just left up for interpretation. The Bible doesn't really know when Jesus confronts us. 
the only proper response is to submit to the authority of what he says and ultimately who he is. And it says, as soon, it's like immediately. As soon as they did this, they did this. Then they did this, then they did this. It's kind of, you get whiplash looking at where Jesus went. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And it says, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. You know, the only response to the healing of Jesus in our lives is to serve. It's service. The only response into the ways that we've been healed, the ways that we've been affected by this word, the ways that we've been changed by this word is to go out and to serve others in service. That word in scripture is diakonos. If you grew up in a Baptist church like I did, then you understood that word because it's where we get the idea of deacon from. And deacon is not the voting leadership body in the life of a church. Deacon are the servant leaders in the life of a church. And it's literally attached to table service. What she did is she probably went and fixed them a snack. Like, hey, can I get you boys something to eat? Y'all been traveling a lot. Do you want me to make some brownies? Do you want me to get some lemonade? Like, whatever a good grandma would do in that moment. Some of y'all know she got him a snack, but she served. This unnamed lady in Scripture is the first of many that we'll encounter over the next 16 chapters because there's a lot of people in the book of Mark who, who, who were changed by Jesus and began following Jesus and began serving alongside Jesus whose names are never mentioned. And as much as we hear Simon and Andrew, James and John, we're going to encounter a whole lot of other people whose names are not known. Y'all, that's us. We don't need our names to be known. We don't need a headline. We don't need a biography. We don't need a following. We just need to serve. And the only response when you've experienced the healing power of Jesus in your life is to submit to his authority and to begin to actively serve others. It says after that, that uh, man with leprosy in verse 40, leprosy was not only a skin disease, it made you a social outcast because nobody would want to come near you. It was highly contagious, COVID-19, y'all. It says a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant, is what the NIV says. Some of you, uh, your Bible translations are going to say compassionate, or, or Jesus saw him. Ultimately, what it just means is like, I'm mad that this is the situation. Like, I'm frustrated that that's this guy's life. I'm frustrated that he's outcast from the community. I'm, I'm sickened by the fact that this is his plight. So Jesus was indignant, and so he reached out his hand, and he touched the man. And this is what made this moment so different, because nobody else would have been caught within 30 yards of this guy. And Jesus is literally physically putting out his fingertips and, and touching the guy. And he says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, there's that word again, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And so Jesus sent him away at once. There's that word again, immediately with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone. I mean, why is that? Like, do you not want the word to spread? Like, what's going on? But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. You see, what had happened is if somebody was ever cleansed of leprosy, if somebody ever got over it and they were healed of that horrible skin disease, they immediately had to bypass everybody else and go into the temple. Because if you had been cleansed of leprosy, the priest who was on duty had to confirm it. And then you better offer a sacrifice to thank God for healing you, else you're going to get leprosy again. So that was the custom. This this man bypassed everything that he was supposed to do, everything that he should have done. It says in verse 45, instead, 
he went out and began to talk freely. That word talk is the word proclaim. It's literally the word publish. He talked freely to to spread the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but Mark 1 concludes with the fact that he stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Ultimately, the only response to the good news that Jesus gives us, I'm willing, be clean. Oh, that's good news. It's It's good news to a man who had not been touched by another human good news to a man who had been put outside his whole community and ignored and left to die. It's good news. I'm willing. Be clean. And his only response to it was to share it. All he could do was go out and share it. So Mark writes to a Roman people, to a Gentile body, hey guys, this Jesus that was crucified by your government that was literally executed by your government. He was not just for the Jews, the sign that hung king of the Jews. He was ultimately for you too. Mark was writing to a Roman people in a Roman style, in a Roman culture that would grab their attention with details that would confront their reality. See, Rome was a picture of strength and they were proud. But look at all of the characters that are in this first story. Jewish fishermen, that's just a bunch of people who were really weak professionally. Demon-possessed dude, that's a man who was weak spiritually. Sick old lady, weak physically. Lepers, outcasts, weak socially. And they all got a picture of the good news that Rome didn't have. That there is strength in something that you don't regard as strength. And these good news words, good news to share, good news to herald, good news to publish, good news to give a testimony, good news to give up your life for. Let's not be lost on us that the very empire to execute Jesus would be the first empire to publicly embrace Jesus, and ultimately they became the epicenter for centuries of Jesus. Y'all heard of the Catholics? That Vatican City? It's in Rome. The very place where Jesus was executed would become the place where he was communicated for the entire world to get to know about him The Apostle Paul, he was the most unlikely church father. And the Roman Empire was the most unlikely church future. And all of those people, lepers, demon-possessed, fishermen, old ladies, the most unlikely disciples, and yet that's what happens when somebody believes. They, They become brand new. Their world is turned upside down. To really be a disciple is to hold fast to the teaching of Jesus, to the words of Jesus, unchanged from the beginning of time, present and available to every single one of us who seeks it, and it's like surgery. It makes you different, and it makes you able. It makes you completely new. That's the goal of this series, That's what we're going to experience as we sit under these words and as we tell the Lord, okay, 
It's not as hard to understand as I thought it was. That was just me being resistant. But still, God, it's hard to believe that you would accept me and allow me to become, weak as I am, your representative in the world. That's what masterclass is. That's what disciple-making is. Us being changed and us being forever his. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the chance to be in this place today. Thank you for the chance to open up your word and to dive into what it says. And it's our, I won't say sincere prayer, God. Because if we're being really honest and we're being really vulnerable and we're being really truthful, there are parts of us that are holding back. Parts of us that don't want to believe all of this. Parts of us that don't want to accept all of this. Because we know as soon as we do, as soon as we believe these words, as soon as we say that we trust you, as soon as we say that we acknowledge this, it means we have to be different. It means we have to be changed. It means somehow or another our lives have to align with what the truth of this word says. And God, that's hard. The hard part isn't believing it, God. The hard part is understanding the call to live it. And so, Father, I pray today that through our study of the word, you would draw us closer to your son and that the closer we get to him, the more we would look like him. That's our prayer, and we make it today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If this content has blessed you in some way, we hope you will share it with a friend and subscribe so you never miss a new sermon. Be sure to check out our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. Tune in next week for more of our series, Masterclass.